in this refulgent summer. It has been a luxury to draw the breath of life. The grass grows, the buds burst, the meadow is spotted with fire and gold in the tint of flowers. The air is full of birds and sweet with the breath of the pine, the balm of Gilead and new hay. Night brings no gloom to the heart with its welcome shade. Through the transparent darkness, the stars pour their almost spiritual rays. We seem under them young children and this huge globe a toy. The cool night bathes the world as with a river and prepares our eyes for the crimson dawn. The mystery of nature was never displayed more happily. The corn and the wine have been freely dealt to all creatures. And the never broken silence with which the old bounty goes forward has not yielded yet one word of explanation. On a midsummer night in 1838, actually July 15th, 1838, so 181 years ago tomorrow, Ralph Waldo Emerson changed the direction of the nascent Unitarian denomination. If you didn't, that was the first opening lines of his Harvard Divinity School address in 1838. A few months ago, we talked about William Ellery Channing and the founding of the Unitarian Church in America. Channing, a generation before Emerson, believed in two things above all, the Bible and, very critically for a new denomination, the use of reason to interpret the Bible, reason above all. Emerson was 16 years old when Channing proclaimed, unlike the more frivolous revivalists, the Unitarians would use reason as their guiding star. The scriptures interpreted through logic would be the basis of Channing's faith. Ralph Waldo lasted all of three years as a Unitarian minister before quitting the job in frustration to take up essay writing and lecturing. So it's a little surprising when a few years later he shows up after quitting ministry to address the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School. Even more surprising in that moment, though perhaps not in retrospect, his address does not begin with a reading from scripture as would have been appropriate at the time. It begins with a description of nature in this refulgent summer. Emerson and the transcendentalists who followed him placed experiencing the world at the center of their theology, displacing Channing's emphasis on scripture reasonably interpreted. Emerson won the debate in his generation. But we can see the influence of both in our contemporary Unitarian Universalism. Unitarian Universalists have, as a general rule, a pretty high opinion of reason particularly of our own reason. <laughs> and we tend to emphasize individual experiences of spirituality highly in our preaching and in our congregational life. And both of these things, reason and direct experience, we speak of as sources of our faith. The reading this morning uh, has a pretty dry title, Article 2 of the Unitarian Universalist Association Bylaws. 
as more commonly known as the principles and sources, it's the covenant that we share as congregations in association with each other. In case you're curious about Article 2, because I was, um, Article 1 follows the practice of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, so it is the name. It reads, in total, the name of this association shall be Unitarian Universalist Association. It is the successor to the Unitarian Universalist. It's drier. We're called the Unitarian Universalist Association. That's Article 1. All right. Article 2, though, is, is the best known part of the founding documents in Unitarian Universalism. You know, we talk about the seven principles pretty often. They've been rewritten. There's art projects about them. Um, there's a version for religious education. While they're not a creed, they're a statement of, of the things that we hold most dear, the things that we covenant to affirm and promote. Article 2 is also something that we explicitly look at and return to every generation. The first version of Article 2 was written in 1961. Unlike a creed, which stays relatively constant from year to year and generation to generation, the UUA's bylaws in Article, I think it's 7, require that the association consider revisions to Article 2 every 15 years. So the principles and sources, as they currently appear, mostly, were passed by the 1985 General Assembly. The movement to write a new version of Article 2 started appropriately with the observation that the 1961 statement of purposes and objectives was too narrowly understood, too narrowly construed. That to encourage cooperation with men of goodwill in every land, poetic as that might be, isn't enough. So that principle became the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. The dignity of man, in the 61 document, became inherent worth and dignity. In the late 1990s, the association, in their first 15-year revision, added a sixth source recognizing the role of earth-centered traditions. If you look in some of our old hymnals in this building and you look at the sources, sometimes the sixth is missing because those are hymnals that were printed before about 1997. In 2008, a major revision was proposed that would have rewritten several of the principles and substantially changed the rest of Article 2. It would have put the sources ahead of the principles and it would have added several other clauses to the whole thing. It came to the 2009 General Assembly and failed by 13 votes. So, over the next few years, if you do the math, we're at about that 15-year mark, because it takes three or four years to change these things. The Unitarian Universalist Association is going to consider what Article 2 should be for this generation. There's a couple groups working on a national level an eighth principle has already been proposed. So it seems like a good time then to take a step back and consider what the sources that we name as part of our tradition are. 
over the next six weeks between now and Water Communion on August 26th, the worship associates and I are going to preach a deep dive into the sources, taking one each week in conversation with each other and the history of our tradition. So keep that little note card that we gave you, because we're going to go through them almost in order. Each of these sources are precious to members of this congregation. Likely, there's one or two that speak to you more than the others. And those might not be the same one or two as your neighbor. This, to me, is one of the beauties of the sources as they are currently constructed. We do not have to choose, metaphorically, between Channing and Emerson, but can find wisdom in the approaches of both. So, six sources. And today, we have the first. Direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder, affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and sustain life. Direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder. In this refulgent summer, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life, the never broken silence from which that old bounty goes forward has not yielded one word of explanation. Direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder has been a pretty direct part of our tradition for at least 180 years and 364 days. That mystery is at the heart of my own life as a religious person. And I am moved weekly hearing about the experiences with mystery and wonder that all of you have and come to tell me about. It's one of the most incredible parts of my week, every single week. There is a challenge in talking about this source. The sources, as written, claim a certain universality, direct experience affirmed by all cultures. First, universal claims this big are often so big that they don't really say anything distinct. What religion is not going to have some version of the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder which moves us to a renewal of the spirit? Sometimes when you pull the camera back, you lose the detail that makes us distinct from other traditions. But it can also, it can be easy to extend that as well to direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder that all of us individually have. That's also the claim of the book that I read with the kids this morning. This is mystical spirituality. There are many ways of describing a shared experience of the divine, but at the root, the experience is shared across cultures and traditions. It's not quite, quite that simple, though, right? because the spiritual experience is not universally reported. There's this um, Freud, of all people, described this. I, I don't quote Freud that often in sermons, but bear with me. Um, this is from the, the early part of Civilization and Its Discontents, and he's talking about a conversation that he had with a friend of his. 
I sent Romain my small book, which treats religion as an illusion, and he answered that he entirely agreed with my judgment upon religion, brackets, it was not a positive judgment, and brackets, but that he was sorry I had not properly appreciated the true source of religious sentiments. This, he says, consists in a peculiar feeling which he himself is never without, which he finds confirmed by many others, and which he supposes is present in millions of people. It is a feeling which he would like to call a sensation of eternity, a feeling as something limitless, unbound, as it were, oceanic. That feeling, he adds, is a pure subjective fact, not an article of faith. It brings with it no assurance of personal immortality, but it is the source of the religious energy which is seized upon by the various church and religious systems, directed by them into particular channels, and doubtless also exhausted by them. One may, he thinks, rightly call oneself religious on the grounds of this oceanic feeling alone, even if one rejects every belief and every illusion. The views expressed by the friend whom I so much honor, and who himself once praised the magic of illusion in a poem, caused me no small difficulty, Freud wrote. I cannot discover this oceanic feeling in myself. From my own experience, I could not convince myself of the primary nature of such a feeling. But this gives me no right to deny that it does occur in other people. I think it is fair to identify what Roland and Freud called the oceanic feeling as something approaching our first source an experience of something beyond and greater than us that feeds the spirit and calls us into deeper life. I cannot tell you if you have experienced this oceanic feeling because direct experience is that, it's, it's direct. What I can say is that for me it's different than Roland. I am not constantly aware of transcending mystery and wonder. Most of the time I'm trying to figure out what the next right thing to do is, whether that's a paragraph of a sermon, a diaper that needs to be changed, or just taking a walk with some good music on my headphones, which, while it might be a spiritual experience, it is not a it is not the same kind of spiritual experience as they're describing. But there have been times in my life, maybe about half a dozen, where it feels like the floor has dropped away and there's a feeling of profound connection to those who have come before, to those that will come after us, where I feel for a moment like I'm having a conversation with something eternal. These moments have, almost without exception, not been when I'm trying to have a religious experience. They've come in the car, driving across Pennsylvania for a funeral, in an apartment in the Bronx, wondering if Stacy and I should move to Lincoln. And yes, once or twice in church, but almost always because of the music rather than anything that anybody's actually said. Half a dozen moments 
spread over decades. And somehow those moments, those direct experiences of transcending mystery and wonder are the sine qua non of ministry, the things without which there would be no calling. These experiences are at the heart of religious life. One of the things that we're doing this summer is holding a preaching seminar with the worship associates, preaching sermons with each other, working on what makes preaching sparkle and sometimes fall flat. So if I can be a little self-indulgent as I draw to a conclusion, here are a few more words from Emerson's Divinity School Address 139 years ago tomorrow. I once heard a preacher who sorely tempted me to say I would go to church no more. <laughs> Men go, thought I, where they are wont to go, else had no soul entered the temple in the afternoon. A snowstorm was falling around us. The snowstorm was real the preacher merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out the window behind him into the beautiful meteor of the snow. He had lived in vain. He had no, not one word intimating that he had laughed or wept, was married or in love, had been commended or cheated or chagrined, if he had ever lived and acted, we were none the wiser for it. The capital secret of his profession, namely to convert life into truth, he had not learned. Not one fact in all his experience had he yet imported into his doctrine. This man had plowed and planted and talked and bought and sold. He had read books. He had eaten and drunken. His head aches. His heart throbs. He smiles and suffers. Yet there was not a surmise, not a hint in all the discourse that he had ever lived at all. Not a line did he draw out of real history. The true preacher can be known by this, that he deals out to the people his life, life passed through the fire of thought. But of the bad preacher, it could not be told from his sermon what age of the world he fell in, whether he had a father or a child, whether he was a freeholder or a pauper, whether he was a citizen or a countryman or any other fact of his biography. It seemed strange that the people should come to church. It seemed as if their houses must be very unentertaining that they would prefer this thoughtless clamor. As a reminder, this is Emerson preaching to the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School. <laughs> Life passed through the fire of thought. Our first source calls us to start not with the thought, but with the life experience. Whether it is the oceanic feeling that Freud describes or experiences that are much more, more mundane, we start with who we are and what we have done, what we have experienced. What we do with that comes next, and that is where we will pick up next week. Amen. <laughs>